0: Name this sound. One more time. Did you figure out what that sound was? That was the sound of a tape measure pulling it out and then letting it go letting it retract back in. (laughs) Let's go ahead and get started with today's episode. Hello everybody welcome to Starting Sustainability. I'm your host Kaylin Chenoweth and today I have a new toy. I purchased what they call an interface. So before I'd have the microphone plugged directly into the laptop and now the microphone plugs into the interface and the interface plugs into the laptop. So I'm kind of playing around with it. Actually, I did. I already I spent like an hour playing around with it and all the different sounds and positionings of the microphone and talking into it. So hopefully this will give you a better audio quality for your podcast listening experience. Let's go ahead and take this time to catch up with Kaylin. I joined a canning group on Facebook because I'm, I feel like I'm 90 years old. (laughs) I know other people can things, but now that we have a garden and it's producing stuff, I had to figure out how to can stuff. I did can peaches and some jams. Yes, I was finally able to find pickling salt and fresh dill, but by then most of the cucumbers in my fridge had turned bad. (laughs) They had gone slimy. So we did wait, we had to wait another week or so for the more cucumbers to come out of our garden. And last weekend... Both Channing and I figured out how to can pickles, and I guess we have to wait like four to five weeks for them to cure and actually turn into pickles. So then he will try them at that point in time, because I hate pickles, but they're all for him. Good for Channing. Anyways, I did join a canning group on Facebook to learn the ins and outs of canning. There's water canning and pressure canning. There's Ruger right beside me. You can hear him. (laughs) That's his collar diggling around. He's sleeping, but I guess he just got disrupted. (laughs) But I also learned of a new concept called dry canning, and I didn't even know that this was a thing, but I guess due to the war in Ukraine, it's anticipated that there will be a wheat flour shortage, so people are getting flour now and preserving it. Flour will eventually go bad, mostly because it has bugs and it. It's got like bug eggs, I guess, in it, and they're dormant, but after a year or so, then they hatch and they come out. What you can do is you can place it in the freezer, like a deep freeze, and leave it there, and just keep it there forever, or until you use it, at, I should say. Or you can place it in the freezer for a few days, enough to kill off any bug eggs or anything. And then bring it out, let it rise up to room temperature, and then you can dry can it in jars. And that way it'll last longer without spoiling. So I really really had no idea that dry canning was a thing. So You like bake them in the oven. I don't have all the details. I was just mind blown that people were preserving flour. (laughs) (laughs) And my first thought was, I go through like one bag of flour a year. So I'm really not worried about it. But the flour shortage means uh, all things that I buy made with flour will also be shorted like bread, tortillas, cereal, all of that stuff. So please don't take this moment in panic and go out and hoard all the freaking flour. We already experienced that with toilet paper and everything else. Don't do that. So please don't go out and hoard all the flour. That doesn't help anybody, but it is something to consider and slowly prepare. So that way the store shelves are not all bare and empty like they were back in 2020. Just, you know, if there's an extra bag, grab it and then you can preserve it. Currently at this point, I have not used any pesticides on my garden at all, which is awesome. So I can say that it is 100% organic, except squash bugs have invaded my pumpkin and my butternut squash and my yellow squash plants, which really sucks. I have learned the hard way that once they show up, it's basically too late (laughs) because once those buggers get there, they get inside the plant. So spraying on the outside of the plant doesn't actually do any good. That really stinks. And I also learned that even though they're called squash bugs or squash borers, once they're there, if you don't take care of them, they spread to your other plants, which is what I'm starting to see. And they've now hit my cucumbers and my tomatoes and my watermelon. So I did go out and buy some organic spray Bt tea, bacillus something. <laughs> I don't remember what the tea stands for, but it's a bacteria that will kill those bugs and caterpillars, but it's completely safe for humans. We're we're okay. And you just spray it at night because the pollinators, like the bees, they're all in the morning and during the day. And then at night, they all return to the hive. So that's the time that you go out there and spray, which is something good to know. So I just thought I would share that with you. Something else with the garden. We did plant corn this year, and it's producing ears at this point, which is really cool. And Channing wanted to know why we planted corn in our garden if there was cornfields all around our house. I thought, well, that's a really good question. (laughs) He's like, why don't we just go pick some of those? I'm like, yes, however... One, that would be stealing because it's not ours, and two, that is feed corn. It's not the sweet corn like what we're used to eating. It's not going to be very tasty. It's going to be really hardy and tough. It's meant to be dried out and last all winter long, actually all year long, to feed the animals year round. It's meant for the animals to munch on. It's not for us and our high-maintenance taste buds, that's for sure. (music) I do want to switch over to our main topic of the day, which last week I teased you about the ugly truth about electric cars and Channing was on call and I I shouldn't have even teased it (laughs) because all I did then was jinx it. So we were unable to sit down and record, but we should be able to do it this weekend because he's no longer on call. So that's excellent. So that's coming next week. But for now I had to change topics and there's two topics of today. The first one is back to school because I'm sure many parents are feeling this. And for the first timer, for the first timer. And for the first time, I have a little preschooler, and so I will put together a little list. I understand this is this is round 1 of going to school for me. I attempted doing a back to school list a couple of years ago pre-pandemic, so probably 3 years ago. And I attempted it, but I didn't have a a school age child at that time. So now I'm actually in the throes of it and trying to navigate it and figure it out, and it's hard. <laughs> so, I came up with a list to help you to at least reduce your carbon footprint and increase sustainability. It's very challenging though, that's what I'm learning for sure. So the first thing to talk about back to school is clothes shopping. I think that's the biggest one because even though I have a bunch of clothes for my kid, he's been playing hard in them all summer long and they are stained and torn and they have holes in them and almost embarrassing to send them to school in. (laughs) I'm sure you understand. He has had a great summer though at the sitters. They are outside every day. They're playing in the creek, they're jumping on the trampoline, they're having mud pies. They have a sand pit. Like they're having a blast. They've got grass stains everywhere. They're he's having the best childhood ever and I'm so happy for that, but his, his clothes have definitely suffered. What I have come up with is to go to a secondhand shop if you're able to. There are some back-to-school swaps, and now that COVID is, well, it's calmed down, but around us it's starting to flare up again. So if you're comfortable, you can host a clothing swap if you have some nice ones. You can always ask and barter or trade with neighbors, neighborhoods, other kids in the class. There's different ways to obtain pre-loved clothing that is still in good condition. The easiest if you don't have a network of people to rely on is to go to a secondhand shop, which I did. I went to a secondhand shop, and everything there is T-shirts and shorts, which is fine for now, but at some point we're going to need pants and long sleeves. So I'll probably have to go back and visit. The cool thing about a secondhand shop is, one, financially it's way cheaper, and two, every week they got new stuff. So if you don't have good luck the first week, come back next week or the week after that. Just keep coming back, and you'll get new variety every time. And you can eventually find everything that you're looking for. I do understand that as kids get older, especially in the teenage years, junior high, high school, they don't want secondhand items. I get it. I was a teenage girl once, and I did not want secondhand items. I did not want my older sister's hand-me-downs. I wanted my own brand new stuff like all my friends. So I get that. And that's where if you have to go get something brand new to reduce the drama in your life, (laughs) to save the relationship you have with your teenager, that's okay. And we'll just make smart choices about eco-friendly brands. Or at least, remember that, buy it for life. Get the long-term, lifetime-guaranteed type items if you're able to. The next big topic for back-to-school would be the school supplies. I have seen some of these available in second-hand stores. Not a lot. It's pretty slim pickings. It's going to be tough to find them. You can. You can hit up garage sales. You can talk to people who had kids who at the end of the school year brought home all their supplies and they might have some left over, that's definitely possible. It's going to take a lot of work, though, to kind of find it. I'm coming at this as a parent with, this is my first time going to school, but if your kids came home from school last year, hopefully you saved all their school supplies and you can salvage it and reuse some of it. You don't always have to go get brand new everything. Save what you can and reuse that. If you do need to get some new stuff, then you can look for eco-focused items. If they're allowed, and I say that because this was the big challenge that I ran into, we had a very specific list of school supplies. Crayola markers only. Crayola crayons only. Elmer's glue only. No off-brands. Like very, very specified. I said, oh, okay. (laughs) So the things that you are able to choose then make the best choices that you can. Like if you need to get a ruler, you can get a wooden ruler instead of a plastic one. Although some schools ban the wooden rulers because they have that weird metal edge and that can come out and be sharp and be used as a weapon. So it's just, it's frustrating and it's challenging, but we're just going to do the best that we can. There's other supplies like the folders. You can get the paper folders or the plastic folders. So you could choose the paper folders. When your kid has to get an art box, You can get a non-plastic art box. There's wooden boxes or cloth pouches that you can use that can be reused over and over. You can also make the decision, if you have to get plastic items, try to find items that are made from recycled plastic or ones that can be recycled at the end of the year. Once you get all these supplies, you got to send them in a backpack. You can find backpacks at secondhand shops. Actually, I found a whole bunch already. Although I I didn't buy one yet because I wanted to take my son Corbin and let him pick out his own backpack. But we're going to go to Once Upon a Child because that's a secondhand shop right around us where he can pick one out. There's actually a ton on Facebook Marketplace that look really nice still. There are all sorts of different brands of backpacks. But I do know that Jansport and Columbia backpacks are lifetime guaranteed. I still have my Jansport backpack from 7th grade. And I remember back in 7th grade telling my mom, this is the one I want. And she was like, no way, it's $60. Which was really expensive compared to all the other backpacks. And I was like, but this is the only one I'm ever going to need. <laughs> and like a mom, because I'm the youngest of 8, so she knows the drill. She's like, yeah, this is the only one you want this year and then next year you're going to want a different one. But I held up my end of the promise and that was the last backpack that I asked for. And the zipper has broken on it twice and the strap broke once and every time I sent it back to Jansport and they fixed it and sent it right back, which is awesome. So you can look for the lifetime guaranteed ones. That might work for the older kids. The younger ones are probably going to want the really fun cartoony themed backpacks and their tastes are going to change from kindergarten to second grade to fourth grade with what is popular at that time. So that might get a little bit more tricky. That's where you can get at least a secondhand one, but do try to buy one that's a high enough quality to last more than just the school year. My sister was giving me that advice. She said that the backpacks barely made it through the last week of school. Cause so I was like, Hey, do you have extra backpacks? I would think you do. You have four kids. She's like, no, they, they barely make it to the last week of school. We're literally taping them up. So then we just trash them at the end. Cause you can't even, you can't even save them and reuse them during the summer to, like, pack a entertainment bag for your vacation or anything at that point. They're just useless. <laughs> so let's get some higher quality ones. Yes, it'll be a little bit more expensive, but they're going to last a lot longer. And backpacks do commonly come with a lunchbox. You can also buy a lunchbox separately. Same thing. Try to get a sturdy lunchbox. that's going to last a long time. And your kids will throw it, drop it, fling it, hurl it at their sibling. So don't get the cheap plastic lunchbox because that's for sure going to break. Try to get a cloth one with a good sturdy zipper. And then the stuff inside the lunchbox like your thermos can be an eco-friendly brand. You can get the stasher bags, reusable Tupperware, a cutlery kit. Don't do all that disposable crap. Get the good stuff that will last a while. And don't forget the cloth napkins and the reusable straws too. When it comes to electronics like laptops and tablets, sometimes those are required for school. I've had nieces and nephews for kindergarten, they had to go get an iPad, which is insane. That's not cheap at all, (laughs) that's very expensive. And then you know your kid's going to break it. There are rental programs. Most schools do provide these and you can rent them from the school. But if the school does not and you have to go get it on your own, there are still some rental programs that you can do. And you don't have to buy a brand new one. This is a trick that I've learned over the years. If you just get the version that is one year old whether it's a laptop or a tablet, the price is cut in half. And you can buy that extended warranty if you're concerned about your kid dropping it in a mud puddle or running over it with their bike or something. So there's other ways that you can save money and be eco-friendly in terms of electrical stuff. Oh, speaking of electronics, I saw this at Target the other day. You walk in and they have an area for the trash, For the recycling, for the plastic sack recycling return, and they had an e waste for cell phones and laptops and stuff. And I thought that was so great because it's not easy to recycle electronics. We have a recycling center here, and it's like once every four months on a Tuesday from one o'clock to three o'clock. Oh, we're open for e-waste recycling. Like, well, the rest of us are at work. Like, this is not easy. (laughs) And you can go to Best Buy and they will do it, except I took mine there. And they're like, your laptop is too old because their e-waste was actually, they would take it and refurbish it. But my laptop was too old, so they wouldn't take it. Same thing with the cell phone company a long time ago when I swapped out phones They wouldn't take my old one because it was too old at that time. I'm like, so then what do I do with it? (laughs) So I still have that laptop and I still have that really old phone that are probably five plus years old now. And they've gone with us on three different moves because I refused to throw them away. I haven't figured out how to recycle them yet. So now, now I can plan a trip to Target and get them recycled that way. So another bonus tip for you. That's the end of my list for school supplies. I'm sure there's stuff that I missed and that's perfectly okay. Okay please check out the Starting Sustainability Facebook group and utilize that to ask questions. Hey, I'm trying to find this, where should I go? Hey, I have this and I'm trying to recycle, where can I go? And use it as a resource. Get in there, ask your questions, be interactive. That's the purpose of the group. We're all helping one another out. Nobody's gonna judge you for trying to be as sustainable as possible. We encourage it, that is what we want. And now we're gonna do part two of the episode which is covering the Isle of Ig. It's E-I-G-G, and I'm pretty confident it's pronounced IG, but it might be IG. But it's a self-sustainable island in Scotland. And I just read a small little tiny blip about this in one of my books, and I thought, oh, I need to go back and look into that. And so I did, and I put it together for today's episode. When we talk about climate change, nobody can blame the good people of IG and they call themselves Igeach or Igers, <laughs> just so you know. The Isle of Aig and the Igers who live there have just celebrated their nine years of producing virtually 100% of their own electricity via the first grid in the world powered by a combination of wind, solar, and hydro schemes. And what's even more cool is that all the cables are underground, so not a single electricity pylon tarnishes Eig's natural beauty. So where is Eig located? It is seven miles off the west coast of Scotland, and it is Britain's most eco-friendly island. It is 12 square miles in area and has a population around 100. So it's pretty tiny. <laughs> but it does have two museums, its own microbrewery, a record label, and a music festival, And it has a quartz beach that sings in the wind. So if you go there and you visit the beach, you'll hear the wind going over the quartz and it makes like a singing, whistling tune sound. But it doesn't work at high tide. You have to go any other time. Oh, and I forgot to tell you my sources. So this comes from, I found an article off of lifegate.com and another article from theguardian.com. So here's a little history about the Isle of Igg. It used to rely on diesel generators for a few hours of electricity a day, but in 2008 it became the first community in the world to launch an off-grid system based on renewable sources, the wind, water, and sun. This gave 24-hour access of power to its residents for the first time, and despite the local population having risen from around 65 at the end of the 90s to more than 100 right now, mostly due to the influx of outsiders who have married locals and came in, the energy provisions have remained sufficient to satisfy everybody's needs. The Isle of Ige has one, 100 kilowatt, and two, five to six kilowatt hydroelectric generators produce electricity from a weir. I had no idea what a weir was. It's W-E-I-R. But it turns out it's like a dam. So that's what it is. They also have four small turbines that contribute a total of 24 kilowatts from the wind. And these sources yield most of the energy on the island, especially during the winter time, when the wind and the rain are pretty frequent. In the summer months, the long days and the south-facing slopes feed 50 kilowatt solar panels with a total capacity of up to 184 kilowatts. These solar panels are the lowest yielding of IEG's renewable sources. In the summer period from May to July, they make significant contributions up to 25% of the total energy production. But outside that, during the winter time, it's only 10%. The solar panels are there, but they are not heavily relied on. And like I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of careful planning to ensure that the design of all of this infrastructure didn't impact the natural beauty of the island. A lot of the cables are hidden underground, which is really cool. The renewable plants send live data through internet routers, enabling remote monitoring to help manage the island's demand for energy. They have a network of 11 kilometers of underground cables. I don't really know exactly what that is in miles, (laughs) but it's a lot of cables and they're underground and they distribute the energy to the households and businesses around the island and the power is also connected to a bank of batteries capable of providing electricity to the whole island for up to 24 hours. So, And power can flow both ways. If renewable produces more than is being consumed on the island, the grid recharges the batteries, and the batteries eventually become fully charged and accept more power, at which stage a series of switches activates heaters in communal churches, the community hall, and the pier lobby. In this instance... Residents are not charged for consumption since the whole community is benefiting from the additional energy. This normally occurs in the winter due to the abundance of wind and rain at that time. And when there's insufficient power, the stored energy in the batteries is used to power the microgrid. The island's health center has its own backup generator in case of a power outage. And if its fridges are without electricity for approximately three hours and an alarm sounds, and all the medication needs to be thrown away at that time. The price of energy is at 23 pence, which is equivalent to 0.3 U.S. dollars, so 30 cents per kilowatt hour, making it one of the cheapest renewable energy systems in the U.K. To ensure that supply is constant and sustainable, households are capped at 5 kilowatts, businesses are capped at 10 kilowatts. So to give some perspective, one kilowatt of energy is the equivalent of running an electric kettle, like an electric tea kettle, and a washing machine at the same time. Filament has also reduced cabling costs, making it safer to use aluminum wire instead of the more expensive copper wire. Residents, business owners, consumers on the island They're provided with individual energy meters that measure the power of consumption and indicate whether they're getting close to that cutoff point or not. (laughs) So they know whether to back off. (laughs) If the cap is exceeded and the electricity goes out, there is a 20 pound, which for us would be $25 penalty fee that would have to be paid in order to turn it back on. To communicate when renewable energies are getting low, there is a traffic light system that has been set up at their pier because it's a small island so everybody can easily see the pier. The red light is turned on to signal to limit your usage and a green light indicates continue on, use away. (laughs) What's really cool is that this system has been unanimously accepted by all residents despite everyone having to decrease energy consumption in order to conserve. By implementing this system, homes and businesses reduced their energy consumption by 47%. That's awesome! What's really cool to point out about the Isle of Ige is that historically it was owned by a bunch of landlords, and back in 1997, the Isle of Igg Heritage Trust purchased the island. And it did this with different funds and investments and contributions, but the end result was that it was a public ownership. So the people of the island owned the island. By making it a public ownership, by making the public responsible for the island, that has really helped enhance and sustain this whole self-sufficiency model. What is really special about the Isle of Igg is that the whole system is the outcome of a community collaboration. Not just public ownership, but the whole community came to work together on this. The maintenance team is comprised of local residents who taught themselves the necessary skills, including a baker, gardener, and a knitter. (laughs) They are the ones who carry out the checks on the generators twice a day to make sure they've remained unused since the previous check. In addition, the position of IG's electric team leader is rotated every three years. The diverse range of skills and experience means that together, locals are able to perform the necessary work on the system. Overall, the collaborative and insightful effort on the part of IGS community has successfully delivered a sustainable means to manage the island's natural resources. This is a really cool example that I hope the rest of the world will be able to follow. Now, this works for the Isle of Ike because they are so small and everybody wants it. If we try to do that here in the United States, it's really big. (laughs) There's a lot of infrastructure. Not everybody wants it. But it doesn't mean that you can't do it within your own communities. A lot of people will go off and do homesteading and live off the grid individually. But you can do that individually. You can also do it as a couple of family units and create your own cooperative We've definitely seen it in other countries. I remember watching Down to Earth with Zach Efron, and in there was one particular episode about Costa Rica where they visited basically a co-op, a little community where everybody there worked together to live sustainably. They had a whole homeschooling program. It was really fascinating. It's not just the Isle of Ige, and it's not just Costa Rica. There, there's other places that do this, which is really cool. So I did find another article of a few other places that you can at least visit or check out or look into to learn and see how they became self-sufficient. This comes from ActiveSustainability.com, and it is the top five self-sufficient places in the world. So the first one is really hard to pronounce. Archipelago of Tolico. In the Pacific Ocean, which is near New Zealand, this is the first place where 100% of electricity power is generated through solar panels. There are 1,500 inhabitants living on the island, and it draws a total of 4,000 panels for their supply. That's really a lot. Three per person. That's quite a bit. But that's one place that you can check out. Another one is El Hero on the Canary Islands. This is by Spain. El Hero Island has become a role model throughout the world thanks to its Hydro Wind Power Station, which is nothing less than a wind farm and a water power station interconnected with the island's power system. It also has a water power plant and a desalination plant. El Hero is a fully self-sufficient island, and the entire island was declared a biosphere reserve back in 2000. That's really cool. Number three is Eco Village in Findhorn. This is also in Scotland. This community is about 200 families of different nationalities who live in a completely sustainable way. Just a few of them set up four wind turbines for producing electricity. They also use biomass and have a biological system of sewage treatment and water heating systems through solar energy. A part of their food comes from their own vegetable gardens and they also have their own bank and currency. They have 61 environmentally friendly buildings and their carbon footprint is half as much as the UK's national average. Number four is Masdar City. This is the first environmentally friendly and self-sufficient city in the world. This is by the United Arab Emirates. The plan for this city began in 2008. It was forecasted to be finished by 2016, but because of things going on, it actually was about 2020 by the time it was finished. Masdar City is in the middle of the desert. It's 17 kilometers away from Abu Dhabi. So in 2013 is when they opened a third of the city in order to receive tourists and its first residents. This amazing city has a perimeter wall for holding back the desert's strong winds and sandstorms, apart from using currents to keep temperatures pleasantly cool and structure narrow streets for the same purpose. The whole city is provided with energy through solar panels to have electricity, as well as for water treatment and urban transport. Vehicles consist of electric cabins, which go all over the city in just a few minutes, and they have an electric train, so there's not a single car using fossil fuel. That actually sounds like a really awesome place to go visit if I had money and didn't have children that I'd have to bring with me. <laughs> the last one is Samso Island, and this is by Denmark. This island is located at the bay of Ketegat in the North Sea. It's 120 kilometers away from Copenhagen. The plane to become self-sufficient started in 1997, and it was mainly based on implementing clean energies. At present, this population, counting a bit more than 4,000, uses 11 wind turbines, which are able to cover the electricity supply. They have a biomass power station and solar farms, which can produce 70% of the necessary heat. What they have not been able to wipe out is the dependency on oil for transport, though some of its neighbors are already using electric cars, and the number of these is expected to keep rising. This way, its residents believe they'll be able to become an island that only uses renewable energies very soon. So they're not completely self-sufficient, but they are almost there. I still give them props. Good job, Samso Island. I think it's very admirable for the island of Aig and all the cities and places that we just talked about to be completely self-sufficient and full-on sustainable as possible. That's awesome. I know that's very hard for us average people to achieve, We just do the best that we can a little bit every day. Every little action counts. So even though buying secondhand clothes, buying a paper folder versus a plastic folder, starting your own garden, even if you're bad at it, every action helps. And we're learning every step of the way. And the more we learn, the further along our sustainable journey we get, which is what we want. It is now time for the weekly challenge. So I'll draw out card here it says buy recycled versions of household products such as toilet paper paper towels and coffee filters I do agree with this but I also want to up the challenge a little bit instead of buying recycled versions of these try to buy the permanent reusable versions of these so instead of toilet paper you could get a bidet sprayer And then get cloths or washcloths and pat yourself dry. Instead of paper towels, use real towels. And instead of coffee filters, you can get a reusable coffee filter. And they have those for both regular coffee pots and the special little Keurig pods. Thanks, Ruger. (laughs) Ruger's ready to be done with this episode, too. (laughs) He's ready to get out of here. So that's my challenge for you. If you're not comfortable about buying all of the permanent cloth or reusable items then you can take it down a notch and just get the recycled versions of these the next episode will be on august 22nd and in that episode we will cover the ugly truth about electric cars for real this time (laughs) i will make my husband sit down with me this weekend i promise Continue to save the world, Sustainer Nation. Best of luck to everybody who is going through the back-to-school drama. Some of my friends already have their kids back to school, which is really early. I'm like, we still got two weeks away, so I thought this episode timing was just fine, but I might be a little bit late for some of you. Sorry about that. Hopefully, you've got enough knowledge at this point that you were able to make some good decisions on your own. Continue to save the world, and I will talk to you all again on August 22nd. Have a great one. Bye.